Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Welcome back to our listeners. I'm Dan Leahy and this is Fortune Favours the Brave. Joining me today are Shai Simkin from Howden, Andy Marr from Axis, Philippa Berry from CFC. And today we're talking about systemic risk in this second part series, addressing the challenges and themes in the cyber insurance market. We finished the last podcast by talking around the topic of systemic risk, and this is where we wanted to pick up today. Philippa and Andy, would you mind explaining what a systemic risk is and why it's so important to cyber insurers? Sure. Um, And for risk of losing all your listeners here, I'll try and keep it brief because it's not the sexiest topic to talk about. So there is a parallel you can draw between the COVID-19 pandemic and the cyber systemic risk. So COVID-19 was a virus that was easily transmissible, knew no geographical boundaries and caused devastating health effects, but also financial impact to businesses. It's not too hard for for companies or boardrooms to look at that and say, hang on, that's exactly what a computer virus can do. So computer virus can be easily transmissible, widespread, and can cause devastating financial impact. So that really has been the core focus of cyber insurers for the last, you know, 24, 48 months. The elephant in the room that we'd all been ignoring whilst the market was in an area of profitability was the fact that we have to address systemic risk. Philippa, can we deal with systemic risk? So, you know, in, in, in insurance terms, I try to explain to my clients that don't really understand what systemic risk is. I try and tell them, look, can you imagine that there would be an earthquake in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Paris, Tokyo, Rome, all at the same time? That's what systemic risk is about. And the question is, are we able to face in the insurance industry an event like this, because we do understand that one one day we may face some kind of a virus spreading all over or some kind of a cloud failure or some kind of technology failure. Is the market ready for it? So that's, I mean, that's where we really are. And, and, and when we talk about systemic, systemic risk and systemic events, we're talking about one single event that impacts multiple companies or insureds, more importantly. Now, we have seen, um, even before business interruption was broad, we had seen kind of, kind of inverted common systemic events, especially when you look at the healthcare sector, right? So the healthcare sector use health information exchanges that hold data from multiple different hospitals. If they get breached, then it can impact multiple hospitals. Now, there are contracts in place that prevent that from becoming a broader event within the insurance space. And, and that's you know where we have had some comfort and, and been able to protect ourselves is with some um, or particular contractual terms and, and you know the word that everyone hates, exclusions, right? So infrastructure exclusions. When most people talk about systemic events in cyber insurance, they are talking about you know the power grid power grid going down or the internet going down and that um, affecting multiple insureds. Now, we do have infrastructure exclusions because there is not enough capital out there to um, prevent us or, or to allow us to write internet failure risk, right? That is something that, that has to kind of go uninsured for the most part. Now, is there a price? Can you do it on a single basis? Could you track it? Yes, but across a whole portfolio, um, that would just not be sustainable for, for or this market wouldn't be sustainable whatsoever. 
there are other parallels and, and, and other ways we protect ourselves. You talked about earthquakes. We have natural perils exclusions, right? We cannot, if, you know, the whole of California went, went dark or there was a, um, you know, a natural event that, that hit the West Coast of America, um, you know, we, we couldn't take that on, on our book. Um, but there is not enough capital out there. You know, as I said, we need to unlock more capital. Um, in order to do that, we have to protect ourselves in certain ways. Um, and uh, the, the third one that we will talk about a little bit later, of course, is a war exclusion um, and how that can impact a book but, of business. But Andy, looking back at, at you know, where, where all of our clients are moving now into the cloud, something that we're seeing mm -hmm. migration to the cloud, we're becoming super dependent on all third-party providers, be it CRM or whatever. And there's one thing about exclusions, uh, na mm -hmm. natural catastrophe exclusions or infrastructure, but cloud and third-party providers are a part of our business now. And I think one of our expectations for the market is to come with some kind of a solution to that. And Maybe the, the we like you mentioned, Philippa. Maybe a technical solution. Maybe you know backing your uh, your data in in a different cloud. But we need to be innovative about this because I think that's part of the expectation. Yeah, and and it's it is always one of those awkward ones. We talk about systemic exposures as insurers and, and brokers straight away point out that you know our, our book is pretty much subject to AWS and Microsoft Azure as well as other cloud providers, right? Now, as insurers, we have to have close relationships with the likes of Amazon, AWS, and, and Microsoft Azure to truly understand how they are structuring their product um, that, that can affect our book. And, and by doing so, we have really true un, and deep understanding and knowledge of um, regional zones and availability zones and, you know, however many nines there are on, on their uptime, 99.909, whatever it might be. That's something that we have to understand to be able to offer that kind of coverage that, that our clients need. So we, we talked a little bit about cloud outages and uh, the property analogy of, of earthquakes or taking out the west coast of America. Have we seen any systemic risk events and how's the cyber insurance market responded to those if we have? We have, yeah. And I think it's fair to say in the last 24 months, we've probably seen at least eight systemic events that the CAP models would say were doomsday scenarios to say that this would be a massive um, financial loss to the insurance market. So because of the nature of the way in which people are trading now and businesses outsource so much of their organization, you have managed service providers as quite a key area of aggregation. So a managed service provider might provide infrastructure support to 10,000 customers, let's say. Um, so there was a really good example of that on Kaseya. They, were suffered, they suffered a ransomware event, which meant that there was a large portion of their client base, if not all of them, that were impacted by that, and they weren't able to operate. The outcome of, of systemic events, actually, so far we've seen is that the, the, the loss doesn't increase with the larger number of people that are impacted by it. Why is that? That's because actually there's a tech solution to this. So actually there's, there's often one universal decryption key provided or there's what there is um, ethical hackers or ethical um, white hackers providing a solution for free on the internet. So actually that demand surge theory that you see in the property market where um, there might be a hurricane and the cost of goods and the cost, the supply of labor means that the cost goes up of handling the incident, that doesn't really have the same impact we don't think at the moment in the cyber market. 
Andy, do you think the same? It's, I do, it's an yeah. Interesting concept. I just, I just thought on a, on a side note worth noting as well, you know, our market has been through difficult times and, um, you know, one industry sector that is still struggling to purchase um, relevant or enough coverage is that managed security service provider, managed service provider from a cyber liability and or technology errors and emissions basis because of this you know the the loss history we have and and the knowledge it's brought of that kind of system that can come um you know if if the um if the managed service provider does suffer that incident it's not necessarily going to be claimed on in the, in the first instance on on the individual company's policies um that's going to be coming back as as an eno on the managed service provider so there's become a lot more difficult for them to purchase because of that and for those events that you're referring to there Randy how how did the market respond because I think this, this is an interesting topic for us on the broking side. You know, we've mentioned this systemic risk elephant mm-hmm. in the room, but we haven't seen this catastrophic event that's translated into huge high severity, you know, limit losses or very large insurance mm-hmm. claims from the events that we, you know, all the people in the room kind of know about and, and know have taken place. Sure. So one way to respond to it is actually to not provide coverage to um, those type of or to that industry sector, which is kind of counterintuitive as well, because if they don't have insurance to rely on in in an event, then it is actually going to come back on on our clients or or on their individual policies. Um, You know, we do have many ways to protect ourselves um, from systemics to the most part. Um, You know, waiting periods, for example, Um, I've coined 2022 to be the year of the waiting period. Um, it didn't quite come to fruition um, as they've actually stayed relatively stable around, you know, well, less than less than a week, um, which for me, for, for kind of, you know, how catastrophic these events can be. And actually, you know, in 2020, 2021, we were seeing um, average um, kind of downtime responding to a ransomware event was 11 days and our waiting periods were at 12 hours. You know, how does that actually help us? Well, actually, if you look at it from a systemic basis and from a service provider basis, um, you know, and it does make headline news as soon as AWS or, or Azure goes down or another big service provider goes down, um, very rarely does that kind of breach that 12 hours um so waiting periods are there for that but then also for cat rest so it's there for the frequency and the severity so when when you price it um, you know we are we we keep saying that we don't have enough data in the uh, cyber insurance world we're still young they've been around for 350 years we've been much less than that when you try and and price the part in in the premium which is the systemic risk how do you do it based on what so there are um, CAT models, cyber CAT models that have been um, developed over the last five to 10 years that support insurers in doing so. So the challenge is, like you say, is that this is a very dynamic and emerging risk. So we're having to recalibrate those models constantly. But ultimately, the models provide insurers an ability to understand the aggregation in their portfolio and, and therefore looking at what would happen if there were an AWS outage on the East Coast of America, or what happens if there is a data breach in the uh, large data um, aggregator in Australia, for example. So the the models allow us to understand what our financial loss loss looks like, and then insurers, we have to price that back in to to our premiums that we charge our clients. I think we've got, before we go too heavily into the negatives of systemic risk and how we're trying to manage it, we've got to 
reference as well, cyber insurers already absorb a huge amount of systemic risk. So we have a level of tolerance to it, but we need to understand at what point does that tolerance tip into where we're not able to provide a sustainable solution to the market. So as Andy mentioned, how do, you know, systemic risk isn't a new phenomenon to the insurance market. Property have been dealing with this for hundreds of years. The cyber insurance market needs to understand or needs to get to a point where we say, okay, can we absorb enough, you know, can we accept and absorb this element of systemic risk and we'll rely on our exclusions to protect us in the event that there is a catastrophic event? Or should we get to a point where there is a cat reinsurance market that's developed that says insurance can tolerate, you know, category one through to four, but we cannot tolerate category five um, events, for example. The challenge in the cyber market is that people confuse events and vulnerabilities when we're talking about systemic risk. So, we we think that actually it's the outcome that we can't support or sustain rather than what the trigger is. The trigger might be an event being a ransomware event or a vulnerability might be one of the 19,000 critical vulnerabilities there are that are exposed. So that's, that's the, you know, we've got to get the language a bit better and we can all understand actually what do we mean when we're talking about a cyber systemic event. Yeah. And I think that, that takes us nicely to our, our next topic, which is, um, you know, how can language in policies manage that that systemic risk issue and Philippa, you mentioned that you know we, we do it already in the market there, there have been introductions of exclusions at different periods throughout the insurance market history to address either fundamental risk or systemic risk um, Lloyd's has reached recently mandated a, a new war systemic risk exclusion um, in March of 2023 um, we kind of touched on it now but what why why is that necessary now? I think actually the press is dressing the cyber market up as being reactive because of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, I would argue the opposite. Um, I joined Axis at the end of 2018. Um, I've been running around talking to clients, talking to brokers about war exclusion since November 2018. Um, and prior to that, and, and other companies I worked at, the cyber market has always been proactively looking at war exclusion, ensuring they're there to prevent these um, sideways events. But w what we haven't been doing is actually articulating ourselves particularly well, um, nor demonstrating, um, you know, when type certain events happen, whether, you know, we believe that would or would not fall within the realm of an exclusion. Let's not forget, for, for an exclusion to apply, we have to prove that an exclusion can apply. It's not just as simple as there's an exclusion there. Um, you know, you have to prove that it falls within that. Now, when we kind of look at or events that could have potentially been um, you know, fallen into that kind of bucket of being excluded, you have to think of Sony. Um, and, you know, we, we look back quite a lot, but we, we need to. And, you know, the ramifications that POTUS at the time was going to say this is an act of war or an act of cyber terrorism, he actually did not because of the imp the insurance implications that would have come with that, right? So there have been other incidents since, again, another Sony attack um, where we, you know, we know the attribution, we know where it came from, but the insurance market did pay out. The point of these war exclusions is to prevent the systemic um, for the most part. I think it's important to add that we haven't actually seen that in the cyber insurance market to date, where the the, the the war exclusion has been applied to deny coverage. And I think there's a, a common misconception that another case in the property insurance market where the war exclusion was deployed is representative of the cyber insurance market. And that's something that, you know, we want to make clear to our clients that that's, that's not been the case. Yeah. 
Correct. And I think that there was also an incident in the kidnap and ransom market as well. Um, but for those that don't know actually what the Lloyd's mandate is, the so Lloyd's effectively have issued a bulletin to all insurers to say that we need to be able to articulate our position on cyber war. So we need to introduce a cyber war exclusion. Um, we welcome that. We think that it's a really good step forward. And as Andy said, it, it's addressing a subset of systemic risk being an act of war. The challenge I think that we have as the market is is correctly articulating and communicating that across to clients because I think that some of the press has reported it saying that the London market, Lloyd's, has no appetite to ensure state actors or state back actors. And actually, it's not the case. We, we don't think that the new cyber war exclusion is doing anything that the current war exclusion wouldn't do. It's actually a positive for clients because it's providing some clarity there and saying that the insurer has to be able to attribute it to an act of cyber war. Um, and so I think in a way it is actually better for the client from a purchasing perspective because there's more clarity for them. I, I, I agree on that because I think one of the things that, you know, we talked in, in the previous episode about stability mm -hmm. and stability in price, stability in, in and, and part of, of what we're looking for is clarity. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our clients had this exclusion, but it was so vague that really nobody understood the wording. I think that really putting it in a, in a clear manner, that's something we're trying to explain our clients. It's not different than what they had. It's just clearing it up a little bit more so you don't have to... Uh, uh, discuss yeah. it in court as such. And I think if you, you know, to refer back to COVID-19 without wanting to give everyone the shivers, but um, we saw the insurance market failing at that point in London because we saw ambiguity of language, which meant that there was a, um, there's a delta between what the customer thought they were buying and the property BI insurance coverage and what insurers thought they were selling. And actually that was, you know, the worst of insurance to a degree because it, we didn't we weren't there and we didn't respond how we needed to for those customers when they need their insurance the most and i think this is a really big step forward for the cyber insurance market to ensure that there is clarity and understanding between the insurer on intent and the and the client on what they're purchasing as well you know when we think about cyber war and these type of risks if you think about it in you know, practicality, um, not Petra is brought up quite a lot, right? Um, I don't think it's a big secret. It's um, pretty out there that actually the 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 country that came off the worst from NotPetya was in fact Russia um, with, with how it impacted some of their, their companies and, and government-owned companies, right? Or state-owned. Um, you know, the connectivity that we spoke about before um, across the world and, and the globe when it comes to cyber risk, you know, they need to be pretty sure whoever's launching an attack that it's not going to backfire on them. Um, and actually, you know, I personally believe that nine times out of ten, any attack is going to be on infrastructure. And as we previously discussed, we have infrastructure exclusions for, for a reason. Um, so actually, the impact of, of a war exclusion or getting into that debate um, might might not be the you know first line of defense for, for insurance carriers. Yeah, I think, and just, just to finish on that point, there is a risk that the war exclusion is a red herring and clouds people's consideration and thought. What we actually really need to be thinking about is what's the outcome? Like, what is a catastrophic outcome that the insurance market can't absorb as opposed to what's the trigger? Mm -hmm. I think there's too much time and focus being spent on what's the trigger and what's the cause. And actually, we need to look at what's the catastrophic outcome that we can't absorb as a market and how do we solve that? At the end of the day, we as insurers are looking at this to ensure sustainability of this market to continue providing relevant coverage um, you know, for the biggest risks that, that faces companies.
Okay, so Andy and I have been in the hot seat taking your questions for the last hour or so. Um, I said earlier that cyber went from hard to sell to hard to buy. Where do you think as brokers we are in the market at the moment? And what's the biggest challenge your clients are facing when they're trying to purchase cyber insurance? Uh, so I, I think we're, we're in a stage where everybody understands that cyber is here to stay. And uh, in the beginning, if we saw only the large corporations buying insurance and the ones that thought that they were exposed, we're seeing now small law offices, accountants, engineers, basically everybody is buying the product now. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. I think that in the next uh, uh, two to three years, most of our clients and most people around the world will be buying some kind of cyber insurance uh, in their program and we have to be there for them. And uh, we have to help them to reach the level of cyber hygiene required by the market. And uh, I would say, Philippa, from becoming the CISO's enemies, we've become the CISO's best friends. So that's that's new because yeah. CISOs are now using us as as ways to to come to the uh, uh, to the board of directors, to the come to uh, to the CFO and ask for more investment in cybersecurity. So uh, in in a way, things things are looking positive, and the, the biggest challenge we will have is really to continuously innovate and continuously be valuable for our clients. Uh, and, and I think that the cyber product is fantastic. I think that uh, we've gone through quite a lot of claims in the last two, three years. I, the, the positive response we're getting from clients, not just because insurance has become not just, you know, okay, we'll pay you post an event, but we'll be there holding your hand when there is an event and we'll give you all the experience and knowledge that we have acquired as an industry over the last two, three years to be there for you. And I think clients value that a lot. I think it's actually really interesting because if you look at the insur the cyber insurance product, the product itself hasn't actually changed very much over the last 10 years, which shows that the product is working and is valuable. What has changed is the services that are given to clients to support it. So first being the response services, now being the proactive services. So actually in itself, we as a market have done really well because the product does respond and the product does pay claims. And now it's about enhancing the customer's or the client's experience of the insurance whilst they're Totally whilst they're using it. So I think, um, well, going back to Shai's point, I'll, I'll answer your question in a moment, but I think it's, it's actually been a bit of a relief that we have seen the product respond as, as, as widely and as frequently as it has. Um, you know, when I started in cyber about eight years ago, I was a little bit concerned that there wasn't the volume of claims that I was expecting, and that's happened very quickly. And what was that being, you know, a very distressing time for, for clients and for insurers and, and people trying to get claims paid, et cetera. It's good to know that the product does actually work and is fit for purpose. So that's been a, a positive outcome. And I think talking about um, maturity, you know, we've, whilst 24 months have been very, very challenging, I think there's a mutual understanding now around what the requirements are to be eligible for insurance. And I think now the challenge will be understanding how do we structure a program? What, what does make sense? Andy talked about waiting periods. It's making sure that the product is, you know, the coverage is there, but also does the limit make sense? Does the retention make sense? And sh is the price dropping off sufficiently at a first, second, third excess layer? So I think it's, uh, you know, to use your term, the, the, the teenage years, hopefully we're at the back of the teenage years and now moving into the young adult phase where we're talking about coverage and structuring programs in a, in a positive way. 
I think that's, that's a really good point to make. And, you know, even though Philippa mentioned, you know, the product hasn't actually changed too much, but it's still extremely technical. Um, and, and to Dan's point, you know, you need to, clients need to ensure they're working with a specialist broker who understands the product. Um, you know, as underwriters, we do still see some, some questions that given what we've just done, gone through, do, do, you know, are somewhat baffling to us, you know, a, a company being presented that doesn't have multifactor authentication in place and being asked to, um, exclude an, an MFA attack. Well, actually, you know, that's it's pretty basic security that, that all companies kind of need. It's, it's not that simple. If, if you'd like us to do that, then you might just end up with some website media coverage. So it's, um, it's extremely important for clients to work with a specialist broker who understands not only the placement of the risk, um, the technical workings of the wording, and also, you know, um, what, what a good looks like and, and where they might be able to find coverage in the market. Yeah, well, we, we, we have to thank you for, for taking uh, the time from your busy schedule and, and coming uh, over and clarifying some things for our clients. And uh, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank, thank you for, you having, for us. having us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the content covered in this episode series. And if any of our listeners have any questions or would like to learn more about what's being covered today, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to contact us through LinkedIn or our emails. Thanks once again to our guests, Philippa Berry from CFC and Andy Marr from Axis for joining us today and talking about these interesting topics and for Shai for joining us from Israel as well. And thank you to our listeners for, for joining us today. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app. <laughs>